very much and what a thrill it is to be a part of this thing. Uh, I don't have all that much time. June and I are supposed to be on stage at the Grand Ole Opry in 20 minutes, so and we want you all to be backstage too, every one of you. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Kathy Lamour tonight. It was Kathy and Louis Lamour who nominated me for this Golden Plate Award that we're getting tomorrow night, and I treasure that. I had so looked forward, as everybody else had, to seeing Louis tonight, and it's a great loss that we all feel. We loved him very much. I'll never forget, and I treasure the time I had with him, which was not very much. But tomorrow night, I'm going to have an opportunity to talk about somebody besides myself and say how I really felt about this great American institution, Louis L'Amour. I've been asked to write and do a tribute tomorrow night to Louis L'Amour. So I'll be doing that tonight. I'll tell you just a little bit about my beginnings, my early life, and I want to take most of my time tonight in answering questions, though, because I've sat with a lot of the young people and I've answered the questions at the table, and it's thrilled me to death to be able to talk to them and to tell them things that they're interested in. I've never seen such a wonderful group of eager, open, hungry minds and of, uh, of young people who really believe in themselves and in this country. And I want to answer any questions that I can. But to bring you up to date just a little bit, I can't tell it all, I wouldn't tell it all if I could, but to bring you up to date a little bit about myself. I was born February 26, Buffalo Bill Cody's birthday, uh, in a cotton farm, in a, in a cotton patch in Arkansas, 1932. And um, I grew up on the cotton farm. I never left the cotton farm until I was 18 years old. But music has always played a part in my life, a very, very important part. There were the long days in the cotton fields, and we didn't have the machines that they got now, like the mechanical pickers and the tractors and, and all of these fancy air-conditioned things that, that we have today. We picked it and plowed it and chopped it by hand, and I plowed with mules until I was 18 years old and left home and joined the Air Force. But from the earliest time, I remember the music and I remember the songs and that wonderful radio that my dad got from Sears Roebuck in 1936 when I was four years old. We had moved into Northeast Arkansas as part of President Roosevelt's rehabilitation uh, program and it formed a, a, a place called Dias Colony out of 14,000 acres of black mud, vines, and cottonmouth moccasins. And this land was split up into 20-acre tracks, and a house and a barn and a chicken house was built onto each 20 acres. And my father had been a hard worker all of his life, provided for his family, had a very good reputation in Cleveland County, Arkansas, where he had grown up and where he had lived and farmed. Uh, and so he had his name in the pot and was given, one day they informed him that he had been given 20 acres of of cotton land in, in Mississippi County, Arkansas. And I remember when I was three years old, we went there in the winter of 1935-36 in the back of a, a one-ton truck. It two took two days to make the 240-mile the, uh, trip, and it was raining and cold when we got there. Well, it was not farmland. It was jungle. There were wildcats on it. There were panthers we could hear screaming at night, <laughs> and there were snakes as big as your leg. And... Uh, <laughs> But my dad and my older brother cleared the land in the first year, 1936, they planted the first cotton crop. 
And at the age of four, I was the water boy. I carried them drinks of water to the cotton fields. And I was always singing. That radio was playing. Uh, I was at the ra my ear was to the radio all the time, listening to that music. And it was a wonderful world out there with that music coming in. You know, it was a, the most marvelous thing in the world. And I told my mother when I was four years old, I said, someday I'm going to sing on the radio. And uh, she always encouraged me to do that. When I was about six years old, I remember sitting on her lap singing with her or sitting on her knee while she played the guitar and singing, what would you give in exchange for your soul? And the Carter family classic, Keep on the Sunny Side, and songs like that. And these songs were such a wonderful thing to me, especially in the years when I started to work in the cotton fields, which was at the age of nine. They didn't know anything about child labor laws back then. Everybody did their part. Everybody was expected to do their part. It was part of survival. We had a lot of love in my family. My people believed in God, a great strong faith in God. And mainly, though, we believed in ourselves. And we believed that we're, we were going to make it, though, as the, um, the bio said, poverty-stricken cotton farmer. We didn't know we were poor. We were just like everybody else on this 14,000 acres. Everybody had 20 acres. We had a community cotton gin, a community, a community store, which we shared the profits at the end of the year. It was really socialism in its purest form. It really worked for that particular time. Uh, they shared the, the profits from the cannery, where we, they took in the, the beans and potatoes and tomatoes and, and everybody canned their goods, and then whatever was sold as farmers in the community split it up. But I worked in my father in our cotton farm in the fields from the time I was nine years old, and about the time I was 14 years old, I was plowing with two mules and a turning plow, and if any of you know what a turning plow is, it's really a man's job. But in the summer, when the fields were laid by, then I could get a job working for other people for money. We, it's the only time we ever had to make any money was when we worked for another farmer who had a bigger farm in another part of the county, and they could pay us money like $3 a day for chopping cotton 12 hours a day or $3 for 100 pounds for the cotton that we picked. So then one summer, when I was 14, I got another job as a water boy, which paid me a dollar a day taking drinks of water, buckets of water, two 10-gallon buckets of water for the men to drink who were clearing the river, cutting the underbrush and getting ready to dredge the river. It was a flat land and it had to be carefully drained every year in order for the farms to keep working. So, but the songs, I remember the workmen's cars were parked as close as they could get to the river. And I remember a 1936 Ford that I really liked because it had a great radio and I would go get the buckets of water, and I'd turn on that radio, and there'd be those songs again. And I would listen to that music. And I was on into the live uh, broadcast from Memphis, from the radio stations there, and I just knew one day I was going to sing on that radio. My mother told me when I was 17 years old that God had his hand on me, and she knew what I was going to do. I had been, uh, you couldn't imagine it now, but my voice was really high until I was 17. I was singing Bill Monroe and uh, Ira Leuven and everybody was singing high. I could sing uh, Red Engel and The Natural Seven, Temptation, songs like that, and really high. But one day my father and I were cutting the winter's wood in the month of August, and we cut the wood then, the hottest time of the year. But we worked all day long in the, pulling the crosscut saw and cutting the firewood for the heating stove and the cooking stove for the month of for the whole year in the month of August. 
And it was, you talk about a man's job. That was a man's job. Well, I came in the back door of the house about sundown. My mother was in the kitchen cooking supper. And I was so glad that the day was over with. I came in the back door singing, everybody's going to have religion and glory. Everybody's going to be. She said, who's that? And I said, that's me. And she said, keep singing. Don't ever stop it. So uh, I knew I was on my way because my voice had come down, you know, and I had a little range there, and I felt so good about it. And singing those gospel songs, I sang all night. And uh, it just never stopped. I just, I just never wanted to do anything with my life but sing, be on the radio. That was the big thing there. And it all to, I'm going to leap ahead and tell you how it all came home to me, and then I'm going to ask for your questions. But... After I got started in the music business, my first big thing I wanted to do was get on the Grand Ole Opry. Every country singer wants to do that. Well, I did that in 1956. 1980, the ultimate for a country entertainer is to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, and I held it up and said, Mama, I made it. And she was watching that night. I was so proud because she always believed in me and encouraged me. But um, in 1957 or 58, I moved to California. And I had been writing songs about life as I knew it as a boy, really writing them from my father's point of view because he was the one that struggled, had struggled with the land. I had to, but not like he had. But I wrote songs about uh, the flood we were in in 1937. I wrote songs about the cotton fields, about the cotton gin, about working in the fields, about cutting the wood, about the lumberjack, uh, about life on the farm as I knew it. And one day... I had written a song called Picking Time about life as I had knew it, knew it, known it and lived it on the cotton farm. And I didn't think anybody in the world had ever heard it. It was in an album of folk country songs I'd recorded. And one day I turned on the radio and heard on KTLA Los Angeles Walter Brennan singing a song I wrote. And it was, all came back home to me. I got cotton in the bottom land, it's up and growing and I got a good stand. My good wife and them kids of mine are going to get new shoes come picking time. It's hard to see by the coal oil light and I turn it off pretty early at night. A jug of coal oil cost a dime, but I'll sit up late come picking time. The corn is yellow and the beans are high. The sun is hot in the summer sky. The work is hard till laying by, laying by till picking time. Last Sunday morning when they passed the hat, it was almost empty back where I sat. But the preacher smiled and said, that's fine. The Lord will wait till picking time. Thank you very much. I was wondering, were you pleased that your daughter Roseanne chose singing as a career, or did you encourage her to become something else? Yeah, I'm very proud of Roseanne. She's doing really great with the songs she's written. Uh, she has a natural talent. When she started out, we didn't think so. You know, she was shy. She wouldn't go on stage, but and she was handling wardrobe. But uh, June and I encouraged her to come on and try, and uh, uh, then she started writing songs. And uh, her biggest seller was one called Seven Year Ache. But then last year, she had a number one record on a song I wrote when she was five years old 
called uh, Tennessee Flat Top Box, and she didn't know I wrote it, but she does now. <laughs> Mr. Cash, could yeah. you tell us how and why you began wearing the long black coats? <laughs> June says it don't show dirt. That's <laughs> <laughs> in 1969, you're going to the Hermitage tomorrow, right? That's yes, a big sir. trip tomorrow. Good, you'll enjoy that. In 1969, I, I, was, I did a, a role in a PBS movie, a movie made for PBS, and I, I had the lead role in it, and I played the role of Chief John Ross of the Cherokees. It was called Trail of Tears, about the removal of the Cherokees. Jack Palance came in and played Andrew Jackson in that. I don't know if many people saw it. Not, if, not many people have. It was on PBS run one time, and that's all, but I was proud of it. Uh, I think it was a good work, and it was a good film. And uh, a lot of the scenes were filmed out at the Hermes. But I, to get back to your question, I wore the long, you know, clothes of the period, the authentic clothes of the period, which is a coat about this long. It wasn't exactly this color, but I came in from shooting, working in that film, and... Uh, I, these clothes are all I had with me and had to pick up June and meet her and go to the Country Music Awards show. Well, this was another big night for us. I had on these, these Chief John Ross clothes from 1830s, and uh, we swept the awards that night. Uh, June said, I got every award except favorite girl singer. We got, to, we got uh, uh, seven Grammys and all for two duets we did. What we're going to do on the Grand Ole Opry tonight. But anyway, that, uh, I felt so good about that night. It was the biggest night in, in the history of the business for me. And I said, well, something. This whole thing feels so right. I'm going to stick with these clothes. But uh, then somebody said black tie, formal affair a few months later or something. So I had a black coat made, and that felt better. So I've worn it since 1970. I got another one too long. I got a new one after, you know, five or six years later, I got a newer one. You know, but, uh, Hi, uh, my name is Scott Harper, and I'm from Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Hi, Scott. Hi. And uh, let's see, I think it, I believe it was three summers ago, maybe two, uh, my favorite working song of the whole summer was The Highwaymen. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what the inspiration for that song was, and which one of the four of you wrote it, or was it a combined venture? Or no, neither one of us wrote that. That was recorded by Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and myself. It was written by Jimmy Webb. And uh, the song was brought to me by Marty Stewart, who was given to him by Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell called and said, you've got to have this, this song. He heard the four of us were in the studio. We still hadn't had a single. We heard that song. We called Glenn Campbell, asked if he would come over and show us the chords on the guitar, <laughs> how to record it, which he did. He put it down for us, and we went by Glenn Campbell's guide uh, and recorded The Highwayman. And it was a very successful song for us. Thank you. Hello. 